The mainstream media is reporting on scandal after scandal that is rocking right-wing politics. At Fox News, a report is spreading that Fox head Roger Ailes will soon step down due to accusations he sexually harassed Gretchen Carlson and Megyn Kelly. An article in New York Magazine says, and I'm not making this up, the sex scandal underscores the ethos of subjugation and exclusion of women that typifies the Republican Party. Former President Bill Clinton agreed with that assessment, saying, quote, the idea of a powerful older man like Ailes making a move on a young woman like Megan is just disgusting. She said she wasn't interested, and he just let her get away. You gotta force it on them. I know they pretend not to want it with all their scratching and fighting and crying and filing lawsuits, but deep down, they really love it, unquote. Another devastating scandal rocking Republicans is the unthinkable plagiarism of Donald Trump's wife, Melania, who seems to have stolen some lines from a speech by Michelle Obama. Although Trump partisans are protesting that Melania used just a few of Michelle's words, Barack Obama issued a devastating reply saying, quote, don't tell me these words don't matter. I have a dream, just words. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, just words. When a reporter noted that Obama had stolen that speech from Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick, Obama responded, quote, good point. I'll remind the IRS you said that when they audit you next week. You want a scandal buster, I'll show you a real scandal, unquote. But of course, the biggest scandal rocking Republicans is the nomination of Donald Trump himself. As DNC chair sort of woman Debbie Wasserman Schultz remarked, quote, the GOP is in chaos as Republicans of principle rebel against the nomination of a liar and a fraud. You don't see that happening to Democrats. We're nominating a liar and a fraud, and no one has rebelled at all, unquote. Democrat nominee for despicable president Hillary Clinton appeared on Charlie Rose's show, where Rose really unleashed the tough questioning by asking, and again, I'm not making this up, do you believe Donald Trump is dangerous and unfit to be president? Somehow, Mrs. Clinton managed to stand up to the withering barrage of journalistic inquiry. She responded, quote, Donald Trump is very dangerous. Just look at the people who lost their jobs when his casino closed. They begged him and begged him for more security, but he wouldn't give them any. And then when the crisis came and they were under attack, he just went to bed as if he didn't care. And when their dead bodies were finally shipped home, he stood in front of their caskets and lied to their parents about who was responsible. Oh, wait, maybe that was me. Now, what difference at this point does it make? Unquote. You can be sure these and other scandals will continue to rock the right as long as the journalistic guardians of our republic are on the job and completely corrupt. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. <laughs> Or something. Well, I mean, all I saw yesterday, yesterday was this thing about Melania. First of all, it's mailbag day. Yay! Yay! So, and that's going to happen after we leave you on Facebook. So you want to come over to the Daily Wire and watch, and then you want to subscribe, because for a lousy eight bucks a month, you get to be in our mailbag. We answer your questions. Your life goes so much better. Otherwise, you're just lost and wandering, and it's, it's sad. Okay, so all I saw, I go on every, every device I have, is Melania Trump and Michelle. Melania and Michelle. That's all I hear about. And, and like every everything that like is downloading automatic news to my phone, whatever it is, it's all Melania's, you know, stole the speech from Michelle. So let's look again at just how close these two speeches are. But her dismissive point, and I hear it a lot from her staff, is that uh, all I have to offer is words. Just words. Oh. We hold these truths to be self-evident.
Don't tell me words don't matter. I have a dream, just words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, just words. We have nothing to fear but fear itself, just words, just speeches. Too close. Oh, wait. You know, <laughs> I mean, this, this is like a big scandal. This is the big news. The only reason it's a big, it's a big scandal is because people liked her. People liked Melania. She was pretty. She was gracious. She spoke in that accent, you know, which is kind of charming. And, and people liked it. So the left just, they caught him. It's an unforced error on the Trump side. They made the stupid mistake. They let it happen. Somebody should have caught it. Somebody should get a kick in the butt for it. But, but the fact that they're running with it so is, is purely a function of the corruption of our media. I did love my, my favorite comparison about my favorite report on the first day of the convention was from Hillary Clinton. Listen to this comparison. Last night in Cleveland was surreal. I kept thinking, what's this like? And then I thought, you know, when I was a little girl, I went to see when they reissued it, the movie, The Wizard of Oz. And there were similarities that appeared to me. You know, lots of sound and fury, even a fog machine. But when you pulled back the curtain, it was just Donald Trump with nothing to offer to the American people. I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. Not a good for Hillary Clinton to be, I think. Like, it's just, it's just too obvious who she is in that movie. All right, but all this to do about the speech and all this kind of uh, sliming of the Republicans during their convention, and then there's a lot to say about the convention, which we'll get back to, it's all just reminding you how much of the organs of communication are owned by the left, how much information that you're getting is coming from the left. That these places, like the Daily Wire, you know, they're successful, but they're outposts. They are outposts of honesty and outposts of a different opinion. Just to, to show you how bad it is, Milo Yiannopoulos, who is a gay Trump supporter, a flamboyantly gay Trump supporter, he had the dangerous faggot tour and all this stuff, he was banned permanently from Twitter yesterday after he and his supporters got into a fight with Leslie Jones from the Ghostbusters movie. Now, Yiannopoulos' supporters are these guys on the alt-right, and they are disgusting, and Milo... I like Milo. We've we've had a long we had a long talk once about Gamergate, and I really liked him. He's a very bright guy and a very decent guy. I think he's making a terrible mistake hooking himself onto this. He's young. He's going to find out. I hope he doesn't find out the hard way when he, when he's when he thinks these alt right guys are being um, ironic in their Jew hatred and their hatefulness and their bigotry. They're not ironic. And by the way, evil doesn't care whether you're being ironic or not. You know. So his his followers went after Leslie Jones, who's black, and were just saying awful, awful things to her. And finally, she dropped off Twitter. She couldn't stand it anymore. I don't blame her. It was shameful. And they banned Milo, who said he had nothing to do with it. He wasn't encouraging them. But the point is, this never happens the other way around. You know, the, the Black Lives Matter guys who are making remarks about killing cops, they don't get banned. You know, they don't get banned when they say that, what is that horrible thing, pigs in a blanket, fry them up. They don't, they don't get banned for that. So it's only one side that gets banned. And yes, it's true, Twitter is a uh, private business. They can ban anybody they want, but 
It's also true that the cake maker who won't cater a gay wedding is a private business, and when she refuses to get, uh, cater a gay wedding, the full force of the government comes after her and runs her out of business. So Twitter is too powerful for them to do that, but it's just wrong. It always, it's always on one side. And by the way, it's not just at Twitter. It's not just at the level of the press. Hillary Clinton is promising to rewrite the First Amendment. She's telling people, you know, she hates this uh, um, uh, Citizens United decision from the Supreme Court so much because it allowed a video that criticized her to be advertised just before, while she was running for office. She, that's why she hates it so much. She wants to get back at it. She's promised him to rewrite the Constitution to make sure that if you band together with your pals uh, to have political speech, it won't be allowed. They'll, the government will be allowed to decide. And never, ever be fooled when they talk about money in politics. Money is speech. You know, it's, the country is too big too broad for you to stand on the street corner and shout anymore. You got to buy ad space. You got to buy billboards. You have to buy commercials. Money is speech. And you have just as much right to speak as an individual who has money as you do to band up with all your friends and form a corporation and speak, or for a business to speak and defend its interests. You all, all of these people have rights. And the other way that they are uh, persecuting people is with these disclosure laws, because that sounds good to everybody. Everybody says, oh, it's transparent. You should disclose it. It's not good. You have a right. You know, the Supreme Court in the early days decided again and again that you were allowed to have anonymous opinions. Remember, the Federalist Papers were written anonymously. Uh, you know, um, a lot of those, a lot of those broadsides that started the, the American Revolution were written anonymously because people didn't want to get shot and ruined their day. You know, so now they have this whole disclosure thing where it's got to be disclosed. And you remember when the uh, the head of Mozilla, the chief of Mozilla, was found out that he had de uh, donated money to support. Proposition 8 against gay marriage, he had to resign because of that. You know, you have a right to contribute to who you want without telling anybody about it. And that we have, unfortunately, John McCain and to a lesser extent George W. Bush to thank for letting those kinds of regulations get in. And the Supreme Court has just been fooled by the sound of transparency, the sound of... Plus, on top of which, it looks like Fox News is <laughs> in big trouble. The last, the, the only bastion of right-wing news, even though it has gone full Trump, it's gone the full Trump. But uh, Roger Ailes, the latest report is that Megyn Kelly is now also saying that he sexually harassed her 10 years ago. More to come on that, but apparently he's leaving. That These are the reports that are coming out. All right, let's look at the convention. All right, last night, some I mean, some of it was hilarious. Last night, Trump is officially voted in as the nominee. And here is Paul Ryan, obviously the chair of the convention, announcing, <laughs> announcing this. The chair announces that Donald Day Trump, having received a majority of these votes entitled to be cast at the convention, has been selected as the Republican Party nominee for President of the United States. He couldn't even smile, and he couldn't get his name right, Don Donald Day Trump. Oh, yeah, he was, he was in my left foot, wasn't he? <laughs> and there will be blood. I'm an oil man. That's what I'm, I'm an oil man. So he, can't, he just looked like, he looked like he was just hearing it for the first time. He looked like, he was like, Donald Trump is the, not what? <laughs> How the hell did that happen? You know? But then he did give the best speech of, of last night. His, his speech was very uh, considered and, and pretty good. Democracy. Democracy is a series of choices. We Republicans have made our choice. Have we had our arguments this year? Sure we have. You and I call those 
signs of life, signs of a party that's not just going through the motions, not just mounting, mouthing new words for the same old stuff. Meanwhile, what choice has the other party made in this incredible year filled with so many surprises? Here we are, at a time when men and women in both parties so clearly, so undeniably, want a big change in direction for America, a clean break from a failed system. And what does the Democratic Party establishment offer? What is their idea of a clean break? They are offering a third Obama term brought to you by another Clinton. <laughs> and you're supposed to be excited about that. For a country so ready for change, it feels like we've been cleared for takeoff and then somebody announced we're all going back to the gates. That was Ryan nobly, I thought, nobly trying to make a positive thing out of the Trump nomination. You know, he obviously doesn't like it. He obviously has a hard time with it. But, but Paul Ryan, who I really like, and I know a lot of conservatives think, oh, he's a traitor to the cause and all this stuff. I really like him, and I think he has put together this agenda, this new way agenda that he has that is really good. It calls for a lot of entitlement reform, uh, real, th real solutions that we need, which is just going to disappear if a, Hillary Clinton wins, and B, if Trump loses so badly that we lose the Congress, you know? So he is in there doing his best to keep things together. I admire him. I wish he were the nominee. <laughs> I wish he were the nominee. He'd be 10 points ahead, I'm sure of it. Um, you know, we'll come back to that in a minute. I think, I, I do, do have to say, I do love these red meat speeches. I really, one of the things I love about conventions, I mean, the only thing that's really entertaining about conventions is watching on the, on the big stage of television, is watching these local guys kern out with their passion and their fervor, and only a few of the politicians really know how to play it. Yesterday it was Giuliani, this time it was uh, Chris Christie, who gave this wonderful, you know, he's got this whole thing, he used to be a federal prosecutor, so he prosecutes um, Hillary Clinton. Play the second cut. This is him on the email scandal. Now, finally, finally here at home in one of her first decisions as Secretary of State, she set up a private email server in her basement in violation of our national security. Let's face the facts. Hillary Clinton cared more about protecting her own secrets than she cared about protecting America's secrets. And then she lied about it over and over and over again. She said there was no marked classified information on her server. The FBI director said that's untrue. She said that she did not email any classified information. The FBI director says that's untrue. She said all work-related emails were sent back to the State Department. The FBI director said that's not true. So, as to Hillary Clinton, the charge of putting herself ahead of America, guilty or not guilty? <laughs> and he kept doing that, guilty or not guilty, and of course the crowd kept shouting guilty. You know it was an effective speech because the minute he walks off stage, the MSNBC attack dog goes after him. And this is the Chris Christie I used to love. When he was, when he was this Chris Christie, I was really fond of him. Watch this. 
It's exactly the way I would prosecute the case against Hillary Clinton. And to the extent that Donald wants me to help do that, you know, I've always said I'd be happy to do it. Are you an imperfect messenger for this, given the fact that the bridge events were part of why you may not have gotten that position as the running mate? No. And first off, I don't think you have any basis to know that, Kelly. Secondly, um, do we have Hillary Clinton calling me imperfect? I mean, you don't want to talk pot crawling the kettle black. I'll put up my record against Hillary Clinton's on ethics, on accomplishment, on achievement, on honesty, any day in the week. And I would just give the secretary a warning. This is not a fight she wants to pick. You incited this uh, crowd to get on their feet, to talk about her, to say guilty over and over again. Do you think that is unifying the party in a way that's good for the country? Yes. Yes, I do. And I think you do, too. <laughs> Bang. You know, that, he was great when he was like that. Unfortunately, he lost his way. I don't know why he lost his way. He's running a liberal state, maybe. But uh, he really has, has uh, he, when he started out, he had that thing that Trump has, but he had it for real. You know, he had that th way of the slapping the press down. I always remember him being asked about an editorial in the New York Times, and his response was, the New York Times. <laughs> I, just thought, I thought that is the way you handle that. Now, the whole thing, uh, Donald Trump Jr. made a good speech, too. Um, you know, I thought he was, he was excellent because he kind of was proud of the fact that he was a, his father was a billionaire, but talked about the fact that he was a blue-collar billionaire, a really good way of getting around the whole Mitt Romney problem. Good stuff, but it's a weird, weird convention. When you watch the convention, the fact that George W. Bush isn't there, the fact that John McCain isn't there, the fact that Mitt Romney isn't there, that is a weird convention. And it, it's all the Trump family kind of filling in for those guys. And it, what you're watching is a takeover of a party. And the question is, these guys like Romney and all this are betting that Trump is going to lose and they're going to come back and take the party back. Now, the reason, the reason that Trump was able to do this is the rage, the rage at the... Um, at the machine, at the establishment. And the Wall Street Journal is making this argument that basically the Republican Congress has been better than we think it has been. And they compare it to that scene in Monty Python where the Jews are plotting against the Romans and they say, what have the Romans ever done for us? And what have they ever given us in return? The aqueduct? What? The aqueduct. Oh, yeah, yeah, they did give us that. Uh, that's true, yeah. And the sanitation. Oh, yeah, the sanitation, Reg. Do you remember what the city used to be like? Yeah, all right, I'll grant you, the aqueduct, the sanitation, are two things the Romans have done. And the roads. Well, yeah, obviously yeah. the roads. I mean, the roads go without sand, don't they? But apart from the sanitation, the aqueduct, and the roads... Irrigation. Medicine. Yeah. Huh? Education. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, all right, fair enough. And the wine. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's something we've really misrated. The Romans left. <laughs> Public baths. And it's safe to walk in the streets at night now, Reg. Yeah, they certainly know how to keep order. Let's face it, the only ones who could in a place like this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but apart from the sanitation, the medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, a fresh water system and public health, what have the Romans ever done for us? So the Wall Street Journal's point is that the Republican Congress has stopped a lot of stuff that would have come down the pike, universal pre-K, gun regulation, $15 uh, minimum, national minimum wage, an Obamacare bailout for insurers, 
equal pay regulation, more disclosure, which we were talking about, uh, free community college, and all these other things, and the fact that they didn't repeal, they did put a, a, a repeal of Obamacare on Obama's desk. He vetoed it, and that's just going to keep happening. The fact that they don't shut down the government, which some uh, conservatives want, would just cost them their jobs. So that's the argument of the Wall Street Journal. But, but whatever they did, they ticked people off so badly that they just don't want any part of them. All right, time for the mailbag. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right, let's start with uh, Rick. Hello, Professor Clavin, he says. You know, a lot of people call me Professor. I just prefer Lord Clavin, if that's all right. <laughs> the show is truly terrific. I just wanted to try and ask a question for the age. Uh, he says, is it time for all of us who believe in everything, such as the Constitution, freedom, et cetera, to simply check out of society, a society that still believes uh, all these lies from Obama to blandly sinister Loretta Lynch, uh, and do we want to build a new society? Do we want to take the uh, what they call the Benedict Option and basically check out? Yes and no. Uh, it says, P.S., Lindsay sounds like a very nice person. By the way, I, I'm going to do every everybody, that's all anybody writes me about now is Lindsay. I'm just going to do an entire show of Lindsay questions. Uh, she's she's taken. This is a married, married woman we're talking about. Um, but you can dream. You know, uh, I, I, believe in, I believe in yes. It, that the, the answer to this is yes and no. The, the country that we had after World War II was uniquely united. That country is gone. It's not coming back. We, Republicans and Democrats believed almost the same thing. They were about on two sides of the 50-yard line. We all knew that Christianity was our major religion. We all knew there was a God. We all believed in the uh, Pledge of Allegiance until the 60s tore everything apart. You know, we were really a, a, a very united country for a very brief period of time. That country is not coming back anytime soon. And so the answer is, instead of trying to impose on people, because a government, look, a government that can impose on you who you sleep with, uh, what your morality is, what your life is like, is, is too strong a government. It's too strong a government. We don't want that government. We want people to be free, but we know that only immoral people can be free. So we have to establish enclaves of morality, enclaves, towns, uh, counties, states of morality, of moral life, where we live the kind of life and, and, um, and demonstrate the kind of life we believe in. And that's going to take fighting because the federal government's going to come after us. They're going to come after us to prevent it, and we're going to have to fight. We're going to have to be sued. We're going to have to go to jail. Uh, and uh, I'm just glad I won't be here to see it because I'm leaving the country. <laughs> but no, that's the way. We, these fights are going to be on the local level uh, more than they are on the federal level, and the, we're going to have to pay attention to all our local leaders uh, much more than the president uh, and who's in the White House because we've lost that election already. All right. Hello, here's another one. Hello, Lindsay and Andrew. This is from Jack. Hello, Lindsay and Andrew. I'd like, and Lindsay comes first. Okay. <laughs> this is, um, I watched those Don't Hug Me. This, was, this is not one that I gave you before. This is one that came in late. Uh, I watched those Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared videos yesterday from stuff I like and thought they were great. I was wondering if there is a genre of literature or any books that you can recommend that kind of emulate the creepy feeling of the videos. Uh, you know, there is, uh, the, first of all, the German romantics uh, kind of invented this stuff. Uh, the tales of Hoffman have a lot of this. But if you want to read a, an excellent modern practitioner, read the adult works of uh, Roald Dahl. Uh, a lot of you know the the fantastic Mr. Fox and the BFG and all these things uh, that he wrote for children. But he had books that had names. I can't even say the names on the air, some of them, but uh, books of short stories that are really weird, really creepy, and have that same atmosphere of things just going bad, normal things uh, just going bad. You should check out the work of, of Roald Dahl. He was really excellent. All right. 
Uh, from Austin. Is this, is this from you, Austin, or just some other Austin? I don't know. All right. uh, since your new book is an autobiography, did you take a different approach to writing in comparison to your fiction? Thanks. Keep up the good work. Uh, we're talking about The Great Good Thing, which we will now plug, and I expect you immediately to go uh, to Amazon.com and pre-order The Great Good Thing, A Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ. And it is, in fact, a memoir, a memoir of my conversion, what uh, Christians sometimes call a testimony. Uh, and I hope you will go and order it. I think, I, I, I think you'll really like it. I think it's a really, uh, people have found it incredibly entertaining and different uh, than the usual thing. Uh, yeah, it was really tough. It was really tough because I'm at this point I'm kind of an expert on telling the sorts of stories that I tell. I know how to construct them. I know where the beats are. I know where things happen. This is a story, of course, that has already told itself since it's true. So you have to make it entertaining without being able to lean on. You know, I couldn't have a guy with a gun. You know, Raymond Chandler said, "When in doubt, bring in a man with a gun." You couldn't just have a guy kick in the door with a gun. As a result of that, I put everything in it, and the book was massive when I finished it. It was like 400, you know, page, it was like 450 pages long. And I gave it to my wife, who was always my first editor. My wife happens to be one of the great editors and one of the really spectacular line editors, and I've worked with a lot of them. And she's really talented at it. She's done it professionally. And now she just does it. I just let her out of the closet to do it for me. And, <laughs> and then slam her back in. But uh, no, she's really helpful. And she read this, and she said to me, this is, half of this is the best book you ever wrote and you have to cut out the other half. And I thought, God, you know, it's, it's hard because all this stuff you love that you worked so hard on, how do I cut out 200 pages? How do I throw away 200 pages? So I did what any reasonable person was do, would do. I said, you do it. You know, here's a pen, edit the book. So with my poor wife, for the next three weeks, and she's a busy woman, you know, for the next three weeks, she went and she kind of said, this should go and that should go and that should go. And then I took it and rewrote it. Uh, and made it half as long and twice as good. So it was really a different experience. I would really like to do it again. I'd like to write more nonfiction, which I'll only be able to do if you buy this one. <laughs> so go out there and buy this one. All right, um, I wanted to get, there was one here that I printed out that was from, yes, here it is, from Chris. Uh, he says, I subscribed. I hope you're happy. <laughs> I'm a 30-year-old police officer living and working in the Richmond, Virginia area. I'm beginning to feel the strain of being automatically deemed a racist by our president and other politicians. I don't blame you, pal. Do you have any advice on how not to lose my mind? Thanks. Love the show. Thank you for your undying support. It means more than you think. Chris, I'm happy it means something because I know I've talked to a lot of cops. You know, Because I'm a thriller writer, I interview cops a lot. I go out and ride alongs with cops and, and all this stuff. And um, uh, I, I know how bad it is. And I know, you know, one of the things I love about cops is how funny they are because people who see terrible things and go through uh, difficult times de either develop a sense of humor or they go bats, you know. And, and I think that's the only thing I can tell you. It's the only thing I can tell you. When you, you are dealing, we hire you, we pay you nowhere near enough to deal with the worst people in society. And the kind of, and the thing that is even worse than that is when the good people see you, so often they don't want to see you. When I get pulled over by a cop, you know, I understand he's trying to save my life. I understand he's making me a better driver. I'm not happy to see him. You know, I'm, I just be honest about it. So you just have to remember that we love you. We support you. The whole country supports you. We know you're out there, and we know you're not a racist. And you know you're not a racist, more importantly, and that you're dealing with people who, look, that that's that's their power. Their power is to hate you. Their power is to get in your nerves and under your skin, and you've got to just not let them do it. Barack Obama is only for now. Nothing lasts forever, and neither will he. He has done a terrible, terrible thing to our police force, and it's, un it's unforgivable. It is unforgivable, and I don't blame you for feeling like you're losing your mind. 
Um, <coughs> Frank, I, gee, do I have time to answer this? Probably not, but I'll give you a quick answer. Uh, you say that we on the right <coughs> ought not to care about which aesthetic standard a writer uses as long as his narrative points in the direction we think is best. It's not exactly what I say, but let me finish the question. However, you've also said that the best years of Hollywood were the years of the Hayes Code, when people had to write in a way which abided by a morals test and still write compelling stories. How do you reconcile these two ideas? What, what I said about the arts is that we shouldn't worry so much. I don't worry at all about whether there's grotesque stuff in it, whether there's nudity, whether there's uh, cursing, because that stuff sometimes represents life and it's sometimes powerful. What I care about is that it shows the world in an honest way, that it shows the world in a true way. And sometimes that means, you know, that doesn't, it doesn't have to be a religious way. It doesn't have to be anything. It just has to be honest. If the, if the world in the arts is honest, you can get to the truth from there. Okay, that's, that's all I was saying about this. Now, the Hayes Code came out, and the Hayes Code, uh, don, uh, falsely named for this poor guy Hayes who didn't believe in it, but, but anyway, the Hayes Code came out, and they said movies, the bad guy can't win, uh, people can't have sex, and of course, the movies got great. That's when they wrote Casablanca. That's when they wrote The Wizard of Oz. That's when they wrote all those classic movies because restrictions are good for artists, okay? Poetry was better when you had to write a sonnet. You had to fit it in there. What I would say is the same thing I would say about America today. The restrictions have to be voluntary. When people are forced into those restrictions, yes, they can produce good work, but what you should do is you should start from a point of view is I'm not going to go the easy way. This happened to me a long time ago. I wrote a book called The Animal Hour, which has the most violent scene in it I ever wrote. I vowed from that day forward, I put the scene in because it was an honest scene, but I vowed from that day forward whenever I reached a scene that I was going to solve by violence, I would at least think about solving it a different way. It improved my books 100%. It made my books 100% better. Not that I'd leave out violence, but just that I'd think, can I solve this without having a guy break in with a gun? All right, stuff I like. I just have to recommend this. Usually I wait till things are finished. Finished, but I'm watching this show, American Gothic, and my wife came in and sat down next to me watching. She said, why are you watching this? It's trash. It is trash, but it's really entertaining trash, and it's a summer show. It's like reading a book at the beach. It's the show about, uh, well, play the, play the trailer. The Silver Bell's killer committed six murders. His calling card, a single silver bell. This can't be what it looks like. If we don't control this story, it will ruin all of us. It does feel like the killer could be someone close to us. Through a grenade. Then maybe you should handle me carefully. Amer American Gothic, the story is that an old serial killer case comes back to light and this incredibly fantastically wealthy family has all the suspects in it and one of them is a drug addict and one of them is, a, is gay and one of them is corrupt and they're all, they're all something horrible, the whole family. It is just so much fun. It's dumb. It's, it's dumb. It's not that well acted. It's not that well written. It's so entertaining. It's written by that woman, Corinne Brinkerhoff, who writes a lot of uh, The Good Wife and a couple of other hit shows. Um, but but I'm, just, I'm just enjoying it no end, and I think it's great summer stuff. Well, look, the Clavenless weekend is coming. Uh, Ted Cruz is going to speak tonight. That should blow up the entire country uh, <laughs> and, the, and the party. And, uh, you know, we have one more day to keep this thing together, to put, the, to put us on a sound enough footing that we can survive through the Clavenless weekend, and we'll do our best. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. We'll be back tomorrow.